Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Um, just because I do all those things doesn't mean I do any of them well. But <laughs> appreciate that, and I'm glad to be with you guys here this morning. Um, let's turn to Matthew 12. Um, I guess it's on there. And let's read our text for this morning. <clears throat> This is from Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear um, your word this morning, press it into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's Christmas season. It's a time of the year when we anticipate, when we have nostalgia, we we think about all the things that we have to look forward to. <clears throat> we get to um, take time off of work. We get to travel to see family and friends. We get to um, set up our Christmas trees. And we get to do a lot of things that I think really press in upon us, you know, that we're, we're waiting for something. We're... We're looking forward to something. Um, this is something that, this is the same feeling that the Jews had 2,000 years ago around the time of Jesus. They were waiting. They were anticipating. It had been over 400 years since God had last spoken to them through the prophet Malachi. And he had been silent since then. And there was this great sense of anticipation. Yet when Jesus finally did arrive and began his ministry and began teaching, he was not what they expected. He didn't meet their expectations. He said and did things that they didn't approve of. I think we do that too when it comes to Jesus. We... um, want to think of him as just a nice guy who taught a lot of wise things, just a great moral teacher or, you know, an example of somebody who really believed in a cause. But if we're honest with ourselves and we really grapple with the word of God, 
We'll see that's not who Jesus is. He's more than that. He claims to be the Son of God, the one who came and fulfilled all of the great prophecies in the Old Testament, who fulfilled all the great offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. He's the one that reveals to us who the invisible God is. We can't see God. God is a spirit. That's what the Westminster Catechism says. But Jesus has made God visible to us. He claims to be our great high priest who makes atonement for our sin, who reconciles us to God. And he claims to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Uh, Today we'll be looking primarily at uh, the offices of Christ as as prophet and and priest. We're not going to delve into uh, Christ as king today. But I will say that uh, just from the text that Jesus in this text claims to be greater than Solomon, who is who was the greatest king that Israel ever had. But Jesus says, I'm greater than Solomon. So this Jesus, prophet, priest and king is the one that we worship. That we don't just admire, but that we worship. And this is the Jesus that is actually worth celebrating Christmas for. So, before we get into uh, seeing how this text uh, shows us Jesus as prophet and as priest, we need to understand uh, the context. So, if we just sort of airdrop into this text, it seems like Jesus is being a little bit harsh towards a fairly innocent-sounding question um, from the Pharisees. They just were, they said, no, Show us a sign, you know, prove to us that you are who you say you are. Uh, But if we read the passages immediately preceding these, um, what Jesus says here, we'll see that Jesus had already done some very clear signs in their presence. Uh, He had just healed a man with a withered hand. He had just... um, cast out a demon from another man. Uh, The problem is, is that he did these things on the Sabbath day and the Pharisees were not pleased by that. So who were the Pharisees? Um, They were a group of religious Jews who kept the Old Testament laws to the letter. And not only that, they added to the Old Testament law more regulations that were not found in the law. And they thought that by doing this, they could be more righteous. You know, they'd be better off, that they were the best. So Jesus shows up and heals on the Sabbath, does work on the Sabbath. And in the the way they interpret the Sabbath law, this is, Jesus is a lawbreaker. And in response to Jesus casting out the demon, they said, well, he's only doing that by the power of uh, Beelzebub. Let's think about that accusation for a second. They're saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is demonic. He's under the power of demons. That's what they accused him of. So 
I'm hard-pressed to think of a more severe blasphemous accusation than, than that one. So that's why Jesus responds here the way he does, because they had just finished calling him demonic. So when, they, when they're saying here, I, I want a sign, that is not asking in, in good faith. This is not genuine seeking after the truth. This is more like uh, <clears throat> what internet trolls do on discussion boards. They'll ask a question and just uh, to stir up controversy, say ridiculous things just to get a rise out of people. That's the equivalent here. So they were not looking for a reason to believe Jesus. They were not looking for a reason to believe who he said he was. They were looking for any reason to not believe. Um, and I know that it's, it's always easy to kind of stick it to the Pharisees when we read about the gospel accounts. But I think we often do the same thing. It starts from the very beginning. Um, when we're confronted with our sin, our natural reaction isn't just to repent. Our natural reaction is to deflect to blame other people, to blame our circumstances. And this started way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve, when they were confronted with their sin from God. They blamed each other. They passed the buck. And uh, I think you see this in, in modern atheists like Richard Dawkins and Bill Nye. They'll often say things like, uh, yeah, we believe in God only if there was enough evidence, you know. If the evidence was clear, we'd, we'd believe. But that's not actually true, is it? They don't want to believe in God. That's the problem. They don't want to believe that there's a God to whom they owe allegiance. So our problem isn't that we don't have enough information. The Pharisees' problem in this text wasn't that they didn't have enough information because Jesus had just done these miraculous signs that only somebody who God was with could do. No, their problem was a spiritual moral problem. They needed their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. And so do we. So that's why Jesus rebukes them. He's not going to play their game. He's not going to uh, entertain uh, this you know, this request in the way that they want. <clears throat> Instead, he chooses to address their question through a story that's familiar to us, but seems doesn't seem like the story that um, we would first associate with, with Jesus. That's the story of Jonah. So if you've grown up uh, as a Christian and grown up in Sunday schools, you probably have heard... Uh, the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet um, sent by God to preach to a city called Nineveh, and uh, he didn't want to do it. In fact, he does the exact opposite of, of what God commands him to do, and as a result, God sends a big fish to swallow him, and he's under the water for three days, and he repents, and the fish spits him back out again. So 
you know, obviously the lesson here is we got to obey God or we'll get swallowed by big fish. Be like, don't be like Jonah. Actually, I don't think that's the main point of the text. <laughs> and I don't think Jesus thinks that's the main point of the text either. Uh, we know that Jesus uh, said on the Emmaus road to his disciples that all of Scripture is about him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And so we should read the Bible looking to understand what it says about Jesus. That's not to say that there isn't a moral lesson to be learned from Jonah. I don't want to dismiss that. We should obey God. Um, But I don't think that's the primary point of the text. So... There's two things that about Jonah that Jesus uh, relates to himself in this text. The preaching of Jonah and the sign of Jonah. So I think through these two things, we're going to discover that Jesus here is saying that he is the ultimate prophet of God and the ultimate high priest of God. So let's investigate first how Jesus is the prophet of God through the preaching of Jonah. Um, and we're going to do that actually by turning to Jonah 3. Probably isn't on there because I told Joe too late. But let's read from Jonah chapter 3. <clears throat> then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we're not going to break this down completely, but there's a few things I want us to note. In verse 3, we read, at least in the ESV, that Nineveh is described as an exceedingly great city. But I actually think uh, that phrase is better translated as a city really important to God. See, God knew Nineveh. He knew all those people, and he cared about them. They were precious to him. Even though they were a pagan city, I'll talk about that a little bit more, he knew about them, and he loved them, and he loved them enough to send one of his prophets there to call them to repentance. I think we need to remember that God loves every single person on this planet. 
Every single one is precious to him. And being called to repentance is a sign of God's love. So Jonah's message of repentance to them is very simple and very direct. It's maybe the shortest exhortation in the Bible. You're going to be judged. And the implication is unless you repent. God is going to judge them. So before we uh, get deeper into that, I just want to note here, it does seem like things are out of order in this text. We see that... In verse 5, they, the people, it says all the people repent. And then in verse 6, it describes the king telling them, ordering them to repent. So I think actually we should understand this as not a strictly chronological sequence. Verse 6 is explaining how verse 5 happened. So verse 5 gives you the big picture. Everybody repented. Verse 6 and following, uh, it describes to us how that came to happen. And we see how total their repentance is. It says, man nor beast, greatest to least. Every time we see one of these sorts of, um, uh, there's a technical term for these uh, phrases. They're called merisms. So greatest to least means everybody. It's all-encompassing. Everybody in between, man nor beast, everybody. Um Everybody repented in the city. 120,000 people repented. And I think that's, uh, that's just amazing to see. And God accepts their repentance. So why, why, what is Jesus trying to get at here when he's talking about this story? Well, he's using the story to draw an analogy between his audience and Jonah's audience. So the Pharisees, his audience. Uh, Jesus describes them as a wicked and adulterous generation. Uh, In Jonah, the Ninevites are described as wicked before the Lord. So some similarities here. A little more detail on who the Ninevites were and and where Nineveh was. Nineveh was uh, one of the largest cities in Assyria, which is in modern-day Iraq. Uh, it was a really important city. Um, it was kind of like uh, you know New York City to us in terms of its cultural importance. And they, the Ninevites and the Assyrians were not part of God's covenant people, Israel. In fact, they were one of Israel's most dangerous enemies. And God actually ends up using Assyria to invade and conquer Israel and send them into exile because of their failure to keep his law. But the important thing to know here is that uh, they're not, at least in the Old Testament, part, part of God's covenant, or so it seems. And that's why Jonah is so upset. Jonah wants God to judge Nineveh. He doesn't want God to show his enemies mercy. Uh, you know, Jonah sees this as a bad thing for Israel, that God is being merciful to Nineveh. So just as Jonah went to this city and preached repentance and forgiveness of sins, so Jesus comes 
onto the scene in Israel preaching repentance and forgiveness. Um, and God was pleased to accept the repentance of these Ninevites, these non-Israelites who were pagan, who were evil, didn't know his law, didn't have any of the religious knowledge that the Pharisees had. So what's the difference? I think the difference is, is that they repent and the Pharisees don't. And it's not dependent on the, the knowledge that they had about God or, or about his law or any of the religious rituals that they did. Um, they don't repent. I think there's a, there's a few ways that we can see how Jesus is saying, is, is making his argument here. He's saying that I am greater than Jonah. Those guys repented when Jonah preached to them. And they were pagans. They, you guys should know better. You guys have been reading in your law and anticipating my coming, and you're not repenting. That's why you're going to be worse off than them on Judgment Day. At the same time, he's saying that I am greater than Jonah. See, Jonah was a, a sinful, flawed prophet. He didn't obey God. He didn't have the right attitude uh, towards the Ninevites. He wanted them to be judged. God wanted to save them. Jesus was perfect. He obeyed God perfectly. He loved everybody that he preached to. He didn't have any reservations about following God's plan. Jesus went to the wrong kinds of people, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the Samaritans and the Gentiles. That's why Jesus is the perfect prophet of God. He's the guy, he's the man who makes God known. He reflects God the Father perfectly. That's what Hebrews says. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And I think for us, this means that we can't count on our religious good deeds, our outstanding reputation, our um, adherence to following all the rules to make us right with God. God is looking for people that are ready to repent. Psalm 51:17 says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's who God is looking for. People that are grieved by their own sin and humbly turning to him for deliverance like the Ninevites. Uh the Heidelberg Catechism defines true repentance in question 88 like this. The dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. That's more than just changing our behavior. That's reorienting our hearts away from sin and towards God. That's something that we need God to make possible for us. And that's the other thing that Jesus does. He not only came to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins 
as God's prophet, but he actually came to make it possible through his perfect sacrifice as God's high priest. So let's go there next. Because Jesus explains how he's going to do this through this sign of Jonah. This phrase that he uses. And I think to do this, we should turn earlier to Jonah, to Jonah 2. I'm going to read that to you. Starting with the last verse of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. For he cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So again, we're not going to exhaustively cover this, but there's a few things I want us to understand from this uh, poetic prayer of Jonah's. It is poetry, um, even though the rest of Jonah is more of a narrative. So this is more like uh, a psalm, if you will. Uh, From verse 1 to the first half of verse 6, we see that Jonah is descending. He's going downwards. Um, In verse 6, when it says that he went down to the land that whose uh, bars were closed around him forever. He's saying that he's gone down into Sheol. Sheol was this Old Testament, this Hebrew word used to describe the realm of the dead. He, he was descending away from God and towards death. That's what he's saying. That's what death is, isn't it? Separation from God. That's why Adam and Eve were banished from the garden after the fall, away from the presence of the Lord. And that's where we're all ultimately bound apart from the grace of God. We're separated from him. Do you guys remember the story from earlier this year of the Thai uh, boys soccer team? Uh, If you don't recall immediately, there was a group of, I think, 12 boys and their coach who were exploring a cave in Thailand after practice. They only intended on staying there inside for an hour. They didn't bring any food or water with them. While they were inside, the monsoon rains started and flooded the entrance of the cave. And they couldn't leave. 
They had to descend deeper into the cave to find safe ground. And they were trapped underneath in the cave for 17 days before they could be rescued. Um, just imagine standing in their shoes, not being able to see your hand in front of your face, having no way to tell the passage of time, feeling the air grow staler with each passing breath. That's what us, that's what our condition is like. That's what sin does to us. It drowns us. It covers us. And there's no way we can get out of it on our own. We need somebody to come in from the outside and pull us out, to resuscitate us, give us life, because we were dead. And that's what Jesus does for us. See, just as Jonah was submerged under the waters as a symbol of God's judgment against him for his disobedience, so Jesus suffered, died, and was entombed in a cave for three days so that God could judge him instead of us for our sin. He was drowned under the wrath of God for us. He was driven away from the Father's sight. That's why he said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what the Christmas story was, is about. Jesus was born so that he could die for us. And it's in his death that he was able to deal with our sin as our high priest by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And he doesn't remain in the grave either. Just as Jonah rose again out of the water by the command of God, so Jesus was resurrected so that he might defeat death for us once and for all. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says that when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is basically saying to the Pharisees, you know, you guys don't get it. You're not going to get it unless you're given eyes to see and ears to hear, unless you are raised from spiritual death to life. So I'm going to make that possible for you by dying for you. This is the gospel that we need to believe. That we need so that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear God for who he is. So we celebrate Christmas because we are looking forward to Easter. In Jesus, all of these great offices in the Old Testament find their fulfillment, their, their culmination, their apex in his person and his work. 
Jesus the prophet has revealed to us just how much God loves us. He loves us enough to send his only son into the world to be drowned for our sin. That's what we just learned in the question and answer from the Westminster Catechism. Jesus, the great high priest, has offered himself for us as the perfect, once-for-all sacrifice for our sin and now stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, reigns and rules over us, his church, forevermore, commanding us to go out into the world and preach this gospel until he returns to bring us home to God. Amen. As Christians, in response uh, to the good news, we...